Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Guys, today on the podcast, I've been waiting for this one. This was so interesting and captivating. We had Amanda Knox, who is an exoneree, a journalist, a public speaker, and author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Waiting to be Heard. If you're not familiar with her story, between 2007 and 2015, she spent nearly four years in an Italian prison and eight years on trial for a murder she did not commit. Uh, Her story is not just compelling, but it is just eye-opening to what happens in uh, the legal system. And this was a really, really interesting podcast. uh, And probably, probably, if not my favorite, the top two. Please listen to this podcast. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Here you go. Okay, today we have a very special uh, episode. I, I've been really looking forward to speaking to this one. This is, we have Amanda Knox. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard of her. And if you haven't, literally go Google it because it's, oh, Or don't go Google or, or it. Or don't Google it, <laughs> I was going to say, right? Yeah, or maybe not. Uh, your, your story is so fascinating. It's so compelling. I'm so happy that you came on this podcast because... I was riveted by your entire journey, your pro- your whole thing for, for as long as it was going on. And I hate to say that, right? But I was riveted. And so the fact that I'm sitting here with you right now is like, it's, it's like surreal, oh, you know? Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad Jason connected us. I know. We have a mutual friend, Jason Flom, who, um, thank you, Jason, for introducing me to Amanda. Um, yeah, so I don't even know where to begin. I'm so curious about like your life after what happened. Uh, but again, I'm just gonna like start with like uh, Amanda was wrongfully uh, accused of murdering her roommate Meredith Kircher uh, in two. Was it two? It was ten years ago. No, oh, it was no, four, fifteen years ago. It was almost so fourteen years ago, two thousand seven. And actually, today is November second. I don't know when you're gonna actually be. Right. This. But um, this is the anniversary of the day that I came home and found my uh, apartment a crime scene. Today. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So Meredith was murdered on the night between November 1st and November 2nd. Wow. That's a whole living hell that I, I mean, I, I want to kind of just t- walk, walk through that whole thing, because obviously this is what's, you know, that's unfortunately what kind of people will remember you, like know you for, right? And I want to understand what you're doing now and how you've kind of like, like how you live your life, really. So we're just going to go chronologically, I guess, through it. However, I want to say I did read a piece that you did for The Atlantic, which was so well written. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. And it really kind of sheds light on like how crazy corrupt that whole situation was. Um, so first of all, and, and not even first of all, you also had two other roommates. Yes. So how come nothing was ever spoken about with these other roommates? Well, they were Italian. Um, they were older than us. They worked for a law firm. And um, I think also they, um, one of them, Laura, was away in Rome the night that it happened. Um, Philomena was with her boyfriend. Um, so she basically had the same alibi That's, that I had. Yeah. But, you know, the reason why I, I mean, there are a million reasons why I was singled out, but I think 
uh, it's like, where to even begin? I know that's exactly <laughs> that's, that's how I feel. I'm like, I don't even know where to begin. I have so many questions for you, yeah. but I ended, that's what I'm saying. One of them I got, they were out of town, but why did the other one not get singled out? The other roommate, but why did you get singled out? Well, I mean, that's like speculating into the psychology of the investigators who looked into the case. And like, ultimately I can't speak to what was going on in their mind. What I can say is there are certain things that, um, they say is the reason. They say that they had an investigative intuition that I was somehow involved in this crime. Um, they said things like, oh, she smells like sex, and oh, she is not acting the way that we would expect someone to act. Here, you know, Philomena, my other roommate, is like crying hysterically. And instead of crying hysterically, I'm sort of shell shocked right. and like gaining comfort from my new boyfriend, Raffaele. And so they looked at me and said, well, she is not acting the way that we expect her to act. However, like one of the things that I wanna point out about like wrongful convictions in general is that when an investigator is making a judgment about you in mm -hmm. a crazy circumstance, like suddenly you come home and find your roommate murdered, like they're, they're making a subjective observation about you and they're viewing you through the lens of suspicion. So I felt like no matter what I did, it came across to them as wrong. So when I cried, mm -hmm. it was wrong. When I didn't cry, it was wrong. When I got comfort from my boyfriend, Raffaele, it was wrong. When I didn't, when I was calling my parents, it was wrong. So I'm not exactly, I can't really speak to like what they were thinking when they thought this person, what I can speak to is the fact that from the get go, they were under pressure to solve this crime immediately. And I was the one who called the cops. I was the one who first came home and discovered this crime scene. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there was even an aspect of, well, the person who calls the cops is like the first person that they investigate and think, right. okay, first person at the scene of the crime, like, could this, could this be the person? Um, but again, I don't want to like speculate into their mindset. I just know that they claim that I was not acting like an innocent person should. And a lot of people have made that claim about me. I think that that's actually a really irresponsible way of looking at the issue because ultimately I was not the one who was making decisions about how this investigation should take place and what sort of things counted as evidence or not. That was the investigators and that was the prosecutor. Right. They were the ones who from the very get-go took this case in a really weird and unsubstantiated direction instead of allowing the evidence to guide them on their own theory making. Well, and also just to what you said, what was interesting, of course, uh, I understand that part. And the fact that you're American, you're a 20 year old girl. I, I never really understood that because they made, they highlighted so much how your reaction was. That was like a huge point that they kept on making. Yeah. And even though there's, it's been so much evidence about how the people uh, respond to uh, all sorts of different tragedies and trauma in so, so many different ways that was completely overlooked that you yeah. were a 20 year old girl from another country. And I, I also, I feel like I feel badly because I know that you've been asked, you know, you have to answer these questions all the time. And here I am again, putting you in the same situation, <laughs> yeah. asking you the same questions. And you're so, you're so like gracious for even answering them. But so thank you. Um, I'm cognizant of that, but well, thanks for being cognizant of that. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel badly because I'm like, oh fuck, here I am again. Like I got to ask her the same questions and she's like, you know, has to kind of go over it over and over again. But 
I, hopefully that everyone has a different audience and different, you know, people and it will help like everyone to understand. Cause obviously you were exonerated, but, um, and for the record, like I, I also understand why the question why, and I understand why it's important to interrogate this issue. If it didn't just affect me, I feel like I would maybe push back more on like, you know what? I don't have to answer that question. Right. Instead, I'm more interested in it because I feel like this happens time and time again in wrongful convictions cases. It doesn't just happen in my case where like there is this sort of victim blamey aspect to the wrongful conviction where authorities will point to a wrongfully convicted person, which means an innocent person who has been accused of a crime they didn't commit and say, you're the reason, like you're suspicious. We're, we're not at fault for ha having suspicions about you. It's your fault that we had suspicions about you. And I wanna push back against that impulse and say, no, if an innocent person is wrongly accused, it's because you projected guilt upon an innocent person. You decided to view whatever their behavior was through the lens of suspicion and you were wrong. And if you pursued that wrong sense, that wrong gut instinct, mm -hmm. despite what the evidence told tells you about their innocence, then you are perpetuating an injustice. Like we all have wrong in instincts about people when we meet them for the first time, right? Right. That's fine. But when you don't allow the evidence to guide you and to tell you what the truth is, and instead you have a gut instinct and you follow that gut instinct no matter what the evidence says, then we have a problem. Yeah, and also though, let's not forget, and you wrote about this in, the, in your um, Atlantic piece, the, the the person who actually was the real murderer was charged with murder on this other kind of like they in a very quiet way on the back burner while still pursuing it, which is, again, how is that even possible? If they know they have the murderer, they're they're charging him. Why are they still bothering you? Yeah, well, that's it goes into an interesting like the why of this question is like the thing that is just has always stuck with me and sort of haunted me. Like, yeah. why? Why? If you like saw like in a lot of wrongful convictions cases, it's like, OK, they go after the wrong guy because they don't actually know who the real murderer yeah. is. And like they do DNA years later and they're like, oh, my God, how horrible. The wrong. Uh, there was an eyewitness and they just mistook them, blah, blah, blah. Like that is a more like honest mistake. The mistake of pursuing a case against innocent people, even when you have definitive evidence against someone else, like overwhelming yeah. evidence against someone else, that's more of either a purposeful corruption kind of thing, or it is a mental gymnastics that is seems like it would be incredible, but actually if you look deep down at the kind of cognitive biases that everybody mm -hmm. has, it's just a horrifying example of it. So for instance, um, there's something called the anchoring bias where the first idea that you have about a person or the first, you know, impression mm -hmm. you have of them, that impression sticks with you, even if you find evidence to the contrary. And so you get into this like tunnel vision loop of confirmation bias where like whatever the evidence tells you, you always find a justification for it explaining your first instinct. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I feel like it's a classic example of that where they said, okay, we have not only have a gut instinct about this person, but we've already arrested her really quickly before any evidence came in. And oh, oops, all this evidence is coming in pointing not to her, but to this other guy who has a rap sheet. Well, instead of pivoting and saying, oh, we were wrong, it's actually him. They just decided to smack all, smash all that together. So they didn't have to be wrong and they didn't have to face the consequences of being wrong, both 
professionally and personally, because I don't think anyone wants to think that they are responsible for putting an innocent 20 year old girl traumatized in prison. Right. Exactly. I, I agree with you. However, because it's all about a beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So having him at least gives that beyond a reasonable doubt for your own legal team. Like what would it would happen with your own legal team? Didn't they run with that? I don't understand. I mean, you, you'd be surprised the, again, the mental gymnastics that people do, like even here in the U S like they'll have like someone who was raped and murdered, say, okay. Meredith was raped and murdered. They get the wrong guy. Years later, they find DNA evidence from like the rape kit. They get it analyzed and it points to someone else. Time and again, detectives and prosecutors have said, oh, well, she just must have had sex with someone else that day. And then this other guy came in and raped and killed her. And we just didn't find his DNA. So like the, the sort of insane justifications to like say we weren't wrong is not just in my case. It happens surprisingly all the time. Yeah. So no, it does. I, you know, and I don't want to jump that much forward, but I can imagine what you said. You're very right about this whole uh, cognitive bias or what, what or anchoring. I bet you, even in your life now, when you meet people and you have been acquitted and you exonerated and all the, and they know who the real killer is, I bet still, and you can say, you can tell me, like, do people like still wonder if you were the murderer? Like when they meet you now, are they still have that idea? Like, well, did she do it? Didn't she do it? Yeah. I, I mean, I, from what I've seen and from what I've heard, I, I always tend to have this feeling of like, I know as soon as I walk into a room, mm -hmm. there's going to be a version of me in people's heads that I'm going to be pitted against. Mm -hmm. And people are going to be, whether they're conscious of it or not, comparing me to the idea of me in their heads. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's even tempting and even fun to go, did she or didn't she? And to like talk about that later. Mm -hmm. And that sucks for me. I, I wish totally. that, that wasn't <laughs> my reality. Yeah. Um, but I, I, came home to face that reality. And that's a little bit why I've been battling and having this ongoing battle to reclaim my life and my identity, because it's not just about reclaiming my freedom. It's about like my whole life has been defined by something that has nothing to do with me. And how do I juggle that? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's unbelievable. And also they, the, your formative years of your life were literally stripped from you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the whole the combination, I mean, it's enough to make, that's when I said, like, it's enough to make anyone go crazy. And you seem, I guess I don't know you very well yet, <laughs> you know, but you seem very like calm and composed and you understand, you, you kind of understand all the different like dynamics of what happens in this stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, when you're trapped in a jail cell for four years, you have a lot of time to feel helpless, but also to think. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand the why, like I said, the why continues to haunt me and the, I wasn't satisfied with easy solutions, right? Like an easy solution might be, oh, just there are evil people in the world and they're doing evil things to me. Right. But that didn't explain the why to me. And I didn't believe that. I yeah. didn't think that my prosecutor was sitting in his office going, <laughs> like, no, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. no one does that instead, like, I mean, there are very few genuine psychopaths in the world. I did not believe that the entire world was filled with psychopaths who irrationally hated me. Instead, the world is filled with real human beings who have real feelings and are genuine and honest and are doing the best they can, who are also irrationally hating me. Mm -hmm. That's a more interesting problem. And so 
I understand that like I am an idea to people more than I am a person yeah. a lot of the time. And I, in my own like life, the only way that I know how to combat that issue is to just do the best I can to be a genuine person and to try, like, it's almost like this double-edged sword where it's like, I, I so understand how insane ideas of me people can have that it almost like feels like it's almost easy for me to wash it off. Cause it's like, what you think of me has absolutely nothing to like, there's no part of me that's like, you know, are they maybe just upright a little bit? Like, no, I didn't murder anybody. Right, right, right. <laughs> so exactly. like, no. Like, so it's kind it, of a, <laughs> exactly. But you said even in the time it happened, which is so insane. Because when it was going on, you said that like there were times because there's been so many well documentaries and movies and your own book and other people, which I think is so interesting too, are profiting off of you. Just you know, inspired by Amanda mm -hmm. Knox's story, and based you're not on. making any based on, and you're not making any money off of any of this, right? Yeah. Which is like unbelievable to me. I'm not even being like consulted, like, oh, how is how might this impact your life if we were to use your name and face to promote our film? Like, no, like it's there's this almost this sort of like expectation, like, oh, we're talking about you, so that must be a good thing. You must be grateful, and it's like, no, actually, I've had. I've seen both sides of this where people talking about you is not necessarily a good thing. Right. Exactly. No, I agree with you. And like when you can't do you have a lawyer that can go after these people like no. that, like that movie Stillwater, you talk about that, too, with Matt Damon. And who was that director? Uh, Tom McCarthy. Yeah, and they, it's a big movie. It's a huge blockbuster movie. I don't know how much money it made at the box office, but it's a, it's a big movie mm -hmm. uh, with a huge star. And they just. People said, like, it was. I saw all the in Vanity Fair and all the other people saying mm -hmm. it was inspired by your saga and all this other stuff. And, like, don't you have a lawyer that can, like, go after them and make money off of that? Well, I'm less interested in the antagonistic approach, and I'm more interested in the what kind of conversations can we have about this overall issue. So for me, when I wrote that piece, it was not to be antagonistic. It was actually to ask everyone to stop and consider that maybe there's another perspective to this based on a true crime genre. Maybe, just maybe, the people who are inspiring your stories, maybe they might have a feeling about mm -hmm. being constantly used as content for entertainment products. And maybe, just maybe, they should have a voice if they are going to be used as content for entertainment. Yeah. And like, I I wanted to take this opportunity to speak to a broader issue that is, that is in our culture. Like, I think it's a really interesting place that we're at where we're talking about cultural appropriation and we're talking about the misinformation and, and the misuse of people's identities, mm -hmm. like the like the gangster thug or whatever. Like we're, we're noting that there are types of people who have been stereotyped into non-humanhood in Hollywood and in inter entertainment products, but we haven't talked about actual individual people who keep being recycled as content over and over and over and made to be sort of characters in these mm -hmm. morality plays that we keep presenting to ourselves. And it's like, I am not a character. I'm not a black and white character in your morality play. I have my own perspective about my own experience. And I find it interesting that people like myself are not given the opportunity to tell their own stories or to present their own stories. And yet a lot of other people outside of them 
keep using their stories over and over and over again and referencing them and using them as promotion. Like it's, I can't tell you the number of times that people have said, oh, it's this, but um, it's like Amanda Knox, but if this happened, and then like, I only hear about it on like the eve of its release and people are like, oh, hey, will you do some promotion for us? And it's like, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> that is so insane to me. Like I, I did see you had a tweet that you like tweet, like Malcolm Gladwell, the whole thing with Malcolm Gladwell had a book. What was that? What was that book called? I can't remember. Talking to strangers. Yeah. Talking to strangers. Which was, ironically, he didn't actually talk to me. <laughs> which is the irony. Exactly. But like, and I don't want to, I don't want to rag on Malcolm Gladwell because like in the end, he, I asked him to have a conversation with me on my podcast and he agreed and he was gracious enough to do that. And he was gracious enough to allow me to call into question his own examination of the case. And like, I did not have like bones to pick with Malcolm Gladwell. No, like, he I at understand. the very least, like did the work of doing research into the case. Like I can't tell you the number of people who don't even really research the case. They just take what they've heard mm. in the ether about the case and then recycle it in their own content. And it's like, yeah, I can't tell you the amount of damage that does to me and not just to me, but to like Meredith's family. I wonder how they feel about right. it. like they're they're like the Meredith character in the Stillwater film having a sexual relationship with the Amanda Knox character. And it's like, don't you know, there's this idea that it's because it's fiction, because we didn't name them Amanda and Meredith. Yeah. People are should understand the audience understands that it's not them. But that's not that's not how it works. It's, the impression is still what it is. A hundred percent. You just have to have like a, gl a glimmer of similarity and people like, you know, jump right on that. Mm -hmm. and think of that. Yep. Did they ever respond to your anything that you've- Not to me directly. I know that a few people who interviewed um, Tom McCarthy um, asked him like, oh, hey, have you seen Amanda's like Atlantic piece? And he was actually really dismissive. He was like, oh, well, she hasn't seen the film, so she can't really say, and it's fiction, so it's fine. Like, uh, it, it was disappointing to me because again, like I'm not here to antagonize. I'm here to- have a conversation so that we can all be better storytellers. Yeah. I completely understand storytelling. Like I'm a storyteller myself right. and I take that I take that responsibility really seriously that I do not have a responsibility just to my audience. I also have a responsibility to the source of my story. And that's something that I think that we've all been failing to do in the criminal justice system, in journalism and in Hollywood. There's this idea that like as long as the audience is entertained, anything goes. Right. And it's like, well, what about the audience that is at the heart of your story and doesn't how they're impacted matter too? Right. No, absolutely. I, that's a that's a really great point. So let's go back to when this whole thing was going on. You you weren't even that close friends with Meredith, correct? Like, I mean, we didn't know each other a long time. I had moved in, um, I think, five or six weeks before the murder happened. So like we knew each other for several weeks, but we weren't like best friends close. Like we had known each other forever. Right. And then again, I, I've got, I like, I'm, I was so even then, back then I remember being like yelling at the TV. Cause I'm like, what would be the real motive? There's like no reason that you would even like, I know they think it's like some satanistic thing or you're like sex whatever gone awry. Yeah. That first conviction, they, they, <laughs> they've defined the motivation as 
oh, Amanda just wanted to do evil for the sake of evil. So ultimately what the the judge like landed upon was she just decided to be evil one day, like <laughs> you do. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's frustrating because like, I think that the thing that the prosecution did was it presented this Madonna whore dichotomy mm -hmm. where it took two young women in, from a tragic circumstance, Meredith and me. Mm -hmm. We weren't all that different, Meredith and I. She, we both liked to read. We both liked to go out and have um, drinks and dance with friends. Like we were very similar. And they decided to pitch us as these two extreme versions of femininity, the invisible ideal victim and the ultimate sexually deviant violent whore. And that was the, that was the painting that they yeah. painted and people ate that up. And instead of the, and, and the media, which is whose job is to hold authorities accountable to the truth, instead latched onto that story and squeezed every last penny out of it that they could. So, yeah. Well, because also, I don't know if people know this or not know this, but isn't there the the government or is also in charge like it owns the media there in Italy? Oh, you're talking about Berlusconi. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. there's a really great podcast actually. Um uh that is narrated by Whitney Cummings, um, all about Berlusconi and his um, oh, really? media empire. Yeah, um, he's massive. He's massive, yeah. But granted, like I, I think that it's interesting that you mentioned that because I know that um I I don't know if I would say that like the prosecution in Perugia owned like was able to control the media narrative. I think that instead it's more a problem of incentive structures. We're we're living in a mm. capitalist world where the media has learned that the more salacious a story is, the more money you make. Yeah. And so they latched on to this tragedy, not because it was a tragedy not because it was in the public interest right. that a young woman was just like murdered out of the blue, but because it had the potential for scandal. Yeah. And that is why people latched on and it was, and then they just kept going. And I like, I actually was, um, I read something recently that was um, looking into the amount of attention that was put on the actual figures in this case. So like Rudy Gaudet mm -hmm. or um, Meredith Kircher, the number of times that they were actually named in a headline Mm -hmm. minimal. I don't think like in the UK where there was like tons of coverage about this, I don't think Rudy Gaudet's name ever made it into a headline. He's the killer of Meredith Kircher, never made it into a headline. Meredith maybe made it into a headline like, you know, several dozen times. Foxy Noxy was in headlines hundreds of times. Oh, thousands, I would say. It's, so it's like, yeah. what are we talking about here? Like, this is in the public interest. Like, let's focus on the facts of the case that are in the public interest. And instead, they hide upon, behind this idea that like, oh, we're we're writing about a story that's like deeply impactful to our community and it has to do with justice and it has to do right. with crime. So it's in the public interest. But again, anything goes as long as it sells. 100%. Also, like, I think because, you know, you're a pretty girl and you, that also sells. And Meredith was a beautiful girl. Yeah, Meredith. Meredith and you're absolutely right because I, to, and I hate to say this, but I never remembered her name, Meredith. I, and I, I never really remembered Rudy, like Rudy's name until I was A like, lot of people don't even know Rudy Gaudet exists. Uh, that's a, like, that's oh. the thing. Like, you know what, to be honest with you, when I was telling people that you were coming on the podcast, do you know what people said to me? Well, did she, did she do it? 
They didn't even realize know, that you were exonerated. It's in the ether. Like Amanda Guilty is just in the well, ether. Well, right, because it is in the ether because most majority of people, if they're not like studying the facts of what's really going on, they hear it in the background and they heard your name so many times, they probably don't remember what the actual outcome of the story was. Mm-hmm. And so I found that to be so interesting to me because even like when I was, I'm like, oh yeah, Rudy was the guy's name or mm-hmm. Meredith was, because your name is like attached oh. to the whole entire- Defines the case. Defines even, the entire case. Which is so, which goes to show why it is so, so important for us to be really, really critical about the, not even just the way like, facts are portrayed or misportrayed, but also the things that, that these, these tragedies are called Mm -hmm. the words that we use to define them. And if we define them as the Amanda Knox saga, that makes it seem like, first of all, a saga calls to mind star Wars to me. So it's like, okay, it's just like, 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 again, nice entertainment product, but like, this is not, it never should have been about me. And the only reason why I was ever focused upon, or even that my, like, there was a, a pushback in in the media uh, by my family was because there was this immediate impulse to take this anonymous person and project all of our ideas of evil and and hatred and female sexuality onto her. And I became a symbol for people. And I was that symbol to be burned. Absolutely. So do you, what, what kind of like retribution, not retribution, but like, does, do you get anything from it? Like from that government or Italy that for taking away, stealing so much of your life? Uh, no. So I've never been, uh, compensated for wrongful imprisonment. Um, I was compensated around 18 grand, 20 grand. Um, it was in euros. So I, you have to do like the exchange, um, for them denying me the right to have a lawyer during my interrogation. That's it. That's it. And that's only because I took that case to the European Court of Human Rights because they were claiming that I just waltzed into the into the police office and started like naming names and accusing innocent people. And it's like, no, 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 no. I was interrogated over five days for 53 hours in a foreign language I didn't understand. And I was called into that room and they did not turn on the tape recorder and they just bullied me and scared the living crap out of me and slapped me until I did what they wanted me to do, which was sign statements implicating an innocent person. Did they physically slap you? Really? Yeah. Remember, remember. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's, and like, they actually, um, again, they didn't record this. They, They had recorded every interrogation leading up to that. And then they just very conveniently didn't turn on the recorder for that one. Oh my gosh. And so it's my word against theirs. But they were telling me that I was traumatized from having witnessed a crime that was horrible and that I didn't remember. And the woman who slapped me said that she was trying to help me remember. She was like, if I hit, you know, um, a lot of people think that like the worst experience of that was when I got convicted and it wasn't, it was the interrogation. It was the only time that I've ever felt insane because I could not make sense of the way that the police were treating me. I didn't understand. And- Oh my gosh, that is awful. I, I didn't know they can actually physically- No, they can't. <laughs> no, they I, can't. I, I know, but then like, and there's, not, there's no like, rem, there's no, there's nothing you can do about it. No, I was alone. 
I, ca- I mean, and how many hours at a time were they doing this with Depended. you? Um, I mean, I was in and out of there constantly. And if I wasn't being interrogated, I was just in the waiting room. Like I barely, I didn't even have a home to go to even. I like know. they closed my entire home off. I didn't have, I only had the clothes on my back. I had like my, my purse and my clothes. And I was staying at my boyfriend Raffaele's place waiting to know what was going to happen and whether or not. Like, I, I honestly had no idea. And here I am thinking, is this a serial killer? Did he target our house and might be coming after us? Like, I don't know. Like, I, on, I, I don't know. Suddenly, out of the blue, Meredith is raped and murdered. I thankfully did not see in, I didn't, I never saw her body. Um, yeah. I never saw her body in person. I was later shown crime scene photos, which I'll never be able to get out of my head. Um, but, I never actually saw her body. And I think that's actually the difference between me and Philomena. Philomena was there at the door when they broke in her bedroom door and see she saw inside and saw Meredith's body. I did not. And so I wonder if like even just that at the very beginning, Philomena is hysterical and I'm confused and and not crying people are looking at the two of us and going very different responses. Well, also very different inputs. I did not see Meredith's body. Philomena did. Wow. Absolutely. That's, I, I, that's a, that's a whole different experience. Obviously I can't, that's interesting that you say that the interrogation was even worse than actually being in prison. Yeah. The interrogation was the, the one time like prison was horrible. I'm yeah. let's just call it what it is. It was a very, very bad experience. And the fact that it just kept going on and on and on. And I just could not like, I just had to wake up every day and be there and know that I wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. That was hard. But like being in that interrogation room and thinking I was going in to help the police and find out what happened to my friend and thinking, oh, my God, thank goodness I'm alive. I could have been murdered. Like I go in there with a certain set of expectations about my role in all of this Mm -hmm. and to have all of those expectations upset and thrown into question. Like I was already dealing with the surreality of like a murder just happened. That was not in my world. That was just not what was happening in my life. I did not know how to react to that. I did not know how to process that. And then to have the police yelling at me and telling me I'm never gonna see my family again and telling me that I'm traumatized and I must have witnessed it and that I'm like, I'm the most important person to their investigation. And if I don't help them, they'll never catch the murderer. I was so confused and so scared, and I have never felt like that before. I've never been that vulnerable before. I can, I, yeah, I mean, by yourself, like it, it, it's your your. Did your parents fly in from America? So my mom flew in the day that they arrested me, and I'm a little bit convinced because they had tapped my phones and knew when she was coming that they felt like they had to get me that night, or else they weren't going to be able to arrest me because they knew my mom was coming and they knew that she would be able to help me. So they got me while I was still alone. What? And so what did your mom do when she got well, there? My mom landed and found out that I got arrested. And so she, of course, is freaking out and goes to the American embassy, gets set up with lawyers, blah, 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 does all the thing. But meanwhile, I'm sitting in a jail cell, not even being told that I'm a being arrested for a murder. I was in a jail cell and they were telling me that I was an important witness and I was there for my own protection. And so I'm sitting there waiting to be allowed to talk to my mom and I don't see her for days. 
And instead, the first time I actually hear that I'm even being accused of having any kind of involvement in Meredith's murder is the first time they bring me in front of a judge and that judge asks me, how do you plea? Like that's how you found out. That's how I found out. I was in front of a judge and the judge says, you are accused of involvement in the murder of Meredith Kircher. How do you plea? And what did you say? Well, I like, you're obviously shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. And my mom, like basically I walked into a room. There were two people I didn't recognize who were my lawyers. And they were like, don't say anything. We are here because your mom, like, you know, hired us. We're, we're here because of your mom. Don't say anything. Cause they hadn't even had the opportunity to talk to me yet. I didn't know who they were. And so I stand there in front of a judge. The judge says, blah, blah, blah. I say no comment because mm -hmm. they're telling me no comment. And then they whisk me off again. So you're like in a holding cell. Yeah. Like in your, do they do change like in the same clothes and are they feeding you or just sitting there? Oh yeah. Like I, I, they, I mean, they fed me. They're not going to like, but you're sitting in the same clothes or they give you like an, a jumpsuit or no, whatever. No, no, they don't do jumpsuits in, in Italy. They, they give, I think they actually, I had a pair of sweatpants on. Um, yeah, I just had like sweatpants on because it is, it was the middle of the night. Like I was wearing, I was wearing Raffaele's sweatpants. You were, and then, yeah. okay, so, but then like they say, how do you plea? And you kind of are like not saying anything. And I, then I say, I, I guess nothing. Like I say no comment basically. And, and then they're leave. like, okay. And then what dismissed. happens? And then I wait until I get to talk to my mom again. And, and then how did it go from that? What did your mom say to you when that uh, was The first going? time my mom came into prison, um, <laughs> she, I love my mom. Um, we, she immediately just held me and we cried for a little bit. Um, and she told me that it was going to be okay. And that, um, it was all just a big misunderstanding and that this thing was like blowing up in a huge way. And she, but we had lawyers and it was going to be okay. What we didn't realize was how long it was going to take. We thought it was just yeah. this like terrible misunderstanding that they were going to figure it out that like any day now the evidence was going to come in and they were going to find out who really did it. And even, even then when they like had the real killer, like it was his fingerprints and footprints in Meredith's blood. It was his DNA all over her body. They still were like, oh, Amanda must have told him to do it. it so it, it, it just, the whole thing is mind boggling. And then, it, so you kind of, your mom was saying it was, it's gonna be okay, but no one ever expected it to be no. as long. No. So when you were in jail for the, what was it like even like how, what was your days like? What did you do in jail? Like you're, what, did you have friends? I mean. Um, so the first eight months I was in isolation, um, which is not the same as solitary confinement. Oh, okay. I wasn't like, I wasn't just stuck in a single cell, unable to go anywhere else and unable to talk to anyone for those, for those eight months. I was instead kept in a cell that was sort of apart from everyone. I did have a cellmate, but I was un I was not allowed to socialize or talk to anyone else outside of my cell. And I was unable to participate in any of like the prison activities. So if there was an outside time, they like took me aside and I was in a, I was not allowed to talk to anyone. Why? So well, because I was under investigation. And so I needed to be isolated. I don't, I don't know. I was isolated for eight months. And then I slowly sort of, I spent the first like two years leading up to my conviction feeling like, again, at any moment, somebody's going to figure out that this, this is all a big mistake. They're gonna let me go home. I was just waiting. I was sort of just waiting for the world to figure it out. And 
then when I was convicted and I realized that the truth didn't matter and that my innocence didn't matter to anyone and that like there was no guarantee that I would be a free person, um, then I had a very different relationship with the prison environment. I realized that it was my home and whether I liked it or not, and that I was a prisoner and that I needed to live my best life under the circumstances. I sort of had to accept what the circumstances were and figure out how I could live a life worth living. So for the first two years, you were like, okay, they're going to figure it out. And like, yeah, I was in like limbo, limbo. And were you talking to your lawyers and your mom and about like, when this happened, like, were you kind of in the process of trying to fit, navigate the situation of how to get out of there, like on a regular um, basis? I mean, yeah, we were in, we're on trial and I'm just answering all of my attorney's questions. They came and visit me once a week and my For family, two years. Yeah. And your, where is your mom now living in Italy with you? My family um, found an apartment and someone in my family was always in Italy to visit me. So every once a week, you got, you got to um, see them? Yeah. Or? So it was six hours a month. Oh my God. Yeah. And so, oh my God, I can't imagine the legal bills that you were, you would have to endure for that. And then the second two years, what was the, so then when they convicted you, you're like, okay, this is my life now. What was your life like? like can you just talk about like, what was it like living in a, a prison there? Was it maximum security? Was it all? Um, I don't know the distinctions in Italy between um, maximum and minimum. I was also in a yeah. women's prison, which right. meant that like, there weren't enough people um, there to sort of, to separate people into different spaces, depending on like, there's a distinction between definitive and not definitive sentences in Italy. I'd never had a definitive sentence while I was in prison because my trial was still ongoing. I hadn't like reached that level where it's like, okay, your definitive sentence is 30 mm. years, whatever it is. Okay. Um, there, so I was mixed in with people who were not definitive and who were definitive. There was no distinction. Um, Instead, like on the male side, they always distinguish between because there's a very different sort of even lifestyle to the definitive versus the non-definitive person. It's more like the difference between jail and prison. Got it. Whereas in the women in our prison, we were all just sort of mixed together. Um, and God, what can I say? I mean, like habits and hustle sounds a lot like <laughs> yeah. what I did. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly, <prison. laughs> right? I can imagine. So give, exactly. Yeah. Tell me your habits. Tell me your hustle. Like what time do you wake up? Like I would literally want to know like the minutiae, like in a yeah. day. Yeah. Okay. okay so, so the habits were largely defined. But wait, by, wait. So, so yeah. I was like, okay, you see, you have a roommate or a, a, a prison mate, right? A cellmate. A yeah. cellmate. Did you get along with them? Did they change them all the time? Yeah. There was a lot of turnover again, because there's that mixture of right. definitive and not definitive. Um, so leading up to my conviction, I was in like a four or five person cell and there was a lot of turnover and a lot of these women um were struggling like a lot like i i maybe was the only person in the prison who still had all of my teeth like we're talking people who are really poor who are really neglected who have gone through horrific experiences and who are also guilty of crimes and so i was sort of thrust into a very very different world that i was used to um i was and my sort of hustle in that world um was the fact that i could read and write 
and that I was fluent. I eventually became mm -hmm. fluent in Italian and I could translate into English. So I became the kind of unofficial translator for the many, many women who were not Italian, right. who were like Nigerian, say, and who could speak like pidgin English and who couldn't speak Italian. Right. And so I often would read their letters for them, write their letters for them, read their court documents. Like that was my hustle. Mm -hmm. It was the way that I, and by hustle, I mean, it was the way that I incorporated myself into the prison community, made myself useful, um, and tried not to get beat up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do the, is it as bad in the women's side as it, you, you know, it is in the men's side, like, or is it very dangerous? Is it super violent in the, in the female prison? Um, I mean, there's going to be differences, obviously, like women are not plagued with testosterone the way that men are. So, right. Yay. Yeah. Um, but again, there are a lot of women, a lot of really battered, damaged women who never sure. really learned impulse control or never learned how to um, navigate conflict in a nonviolent way. So like there was always this, there was always the danger of someone just snapping, going, snapping and going off. Um, however, I took great care to be as small and as invisible as possible while I was in prison right. and also as useful as possible so that people would um, basically not feel any impulse to like have negative feelings towards me. I didn't gossip. I didn't really incorporate myself into the social world, mm -hmm. largely out of like reticence to be in a space where like gossip could exist. Right. I just wanted to sort of be like independent Switzerland. Like I'm just here if you need me to read your doc court documents right. for you. Um, and to basically just read and be left alone. So you did you ever get beaten up then? No, I did not, but I definitely witnessed, um, violence and, um, it, uh, I'm, I, I don't, I, I get a sort of like deer in headlights syndrome thing where it, when it happens, I just kind of like freeze. freeze and, um, and this one time I actually collapsed, but not because I didn't faint. I just like lost sort of feeling in my legs and I like fell down. Um, anyway, um, but then, so the habits are largely defined by just the prison routine. Right. Um, I don't get to determine where I am at any given point or when I get to eat or what all of these things, like these things are dictated for me. So the few things that I had control over was how do I occupy the hours and hours and hours and hours I have locked in this one room? Um, how big is the room? Um, well, I guess it wouldn't help because your, <laughs> your viewers, um, it's going to be like a 10 by 10 maybe. Um, that's the one that I shared with uh, one other person and it was one of the more modern prisons. So I had my own toilet and I had my own sink. Um, it was not like one of the older ones where you had to like wait your turn to be taken out of your cell to use the restroom or something like that. Like we was it in your actual unit, you mean in, in my your, cell, in your yeah. cell, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not unit. I was thinking of like an apartment, which it wasn't. <laughs> so you, is there a, do you have pride? Like, is there like a covering or is it? Yeah. Just yeah. There was like actual, there was an actual wall. And of course there are like little screens that the guards can like look into and watch you. Right. But like they usually kept it closed. And that was where the sh we had a shower. I had a toilet. Um, we had a sink and then we had actually a, a separate like kitcheny sink that we could like wash our clothes and our, um, our dishes in. And you and your, and your cellmate would share that area. Yeah. yeah. And then, okay. So what time do you wake up? Like, what do you do? And then, 
I tended to wake up around seven-ish when the medicine cart wheeled through. Um, it was really echoey hallways. It was like all concrete and so concrete and steel. So you just heard these echoing hallways and there was a medicine cart that went through every morning um, that like brought everyone their sort of methadone or whatever it is that they needed. Um, that usually woke me up. Um, I then, then we were given our breakfast, which was either warm tea or warm milk or warm coffee. Um, and then if you bought like biscuits or things, you could dip those in and that was your breakfast. Um, but if you didn't buy biscuits, they won't feed you then, breakfast. No, there's no food for breakfast. It's just, the just drink. those drinks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then for, and then you had a two hour outside period where there's like this sort of concrete outside area that you can just walk in circles in. So I would do that. And then I come back to my cell. Um, they would serve lunch, which was a starch, a meat and a vegetable. So a lot of time it was like spaghetti with nothing on it and spinach. And then, um, you know, some cartilagey meat, whatever it is. Um, not great, but I've, I think better than American prisons. I've heard horror stories. Yeah, I was going to say they give you, a, they actually give you a balanced diet. There were never like. cockroaches in my food. So like okay, at well, the very least there wasn't that. Okay. Well, um, I guess that's a win. It's a win. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then after that, um, there was another two hour period that you could go outside if you wanted to, then you were back in your cell. Um, and then there was one hour at the end of the day called socialita when you were allowed to go into another person's cell as a kind of like socializing hour. And that was the hour that I would go into other people's cells mm. and write their letters for them. And then that's the end of the day. So what time did it be in bed by? Or um, in your, oh, in your I would go to bed early just because I just wanted the day to be over. Yeah. So I would go to bed around eight. But what is there to do anyway? Like, there's nothing to do. There's a lot of soap operas on TV. Oh, so is there a com like a communal area where you can no, watch TV? No. Um, uh, so there were no communal areas except for the outside yeah. area. Like we didn't. We always stayed in our cell if we weren't like in the it, outside in the outside area. area. So they every cell did have a TV mounted to the wall. So you guys can watch like TV all day if you wanted to. The TVs were on all day and i did not like it so can they was was the news all about you all the time and there's no way to control that so you're you were in your cell watching yourself on the news well most of the time i was reading a book and trying not to pay attention to the tv but your team i keep on saying the teammate your cell prison cell mate. Mate. Mm -hmm. yeah everyone followed the case so everyone knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. And interesting, like the jury is not sequestered there, right? Mm -hmm. So they also knew exactly every little thing that was going on in the media. Yeah, and they all they all came to that trial having read all the news and all of that. So there was no like unbiased jury in my case. So how did it go? Like, I mean, I know, I know from reading everything, but from your perspective, when did you get that like, okay, this is going to be now you're, you, you're, you have another chance to become free or you have another chance to, cause you thought at this point, it's like, there's no hope. You already kind of acclimated to this is your life. Yeah. And by the way, were you speaking with Raphael at all? Like, were you guys kind of like. We occasionally exchanged letters, but we weren't allowed to talk to each other. So even like we would go to, the, we always were in the courtroom together, but right. we weren't allowed to talk to each other. We right. weren't even really allowed to make eye contact, which is why it was a big deal when we did. Like if we would see across each other, like see each other across the courtroom, right. we would usually try to like give each other a sign, like just like, how are you? Like, are you okay? Kind of thing like that. And then of course the press goes crazy. Oh my God, they're having a love affair while on trial. And it's exactly. Like, oh I'm just asking if he's okay. And he was in jail um, too though, right? Yeah. 
for the same amount of time. He was in solitary confinement for eight months. Um, and he was in the, yes, he was with me the entire journey in the sense that like we were both on trial at the same time, always with the same court dates. We just were in separate prison, like separate prisons. Right. And, um, and poor, poor Raffaele, because no one ever cared about him. Like he writes about it in his book, yeah. how he was Mr. Nobody. Like nobody actually cared about him. He was just my alibi. And so he had to be dragged into this mess along with me. Totally. I never hear about him. I never even knew what happened with him. Yeah. So he was in solitary confinement. And did he get out when you got out? But that was no news. Like everyone just like, he just kind of got out of jail. And, yeah. And that was it. And he didn't come back to a world that was very warm towards him like this was his country and he was treated like a villain in his own country i at least got to come home to people at the airport saying welcome home right you know god absolutely it's like the amount of people that were forgotten in this case it was literally like the amanda knox show that was it yes and then people come to me and they're like why why was it such an amanda knox show and i was like well why don't you ask the prosecutor? Yeah. Why don't you ask the detectives? Why don't you ask the journalists who all made it about me when it never should have been about me? Yeah. It's like, oh, it's your fault that that was happening. I mean, well, you'd be surprised how many people treat it like it's my I, fault. It's it's unbelievable. A lot of these things, a lot of the stuff that you're saying is unbelievable. So then when did you get the moment like, OK, guess what, Amanda? We have a chance of getting you out of here. What was that like? How did that happen? So it's the way that I um, sort of describe it is like, Leading up to my conviction, I just kept getting more and more hopeful because I kept thinking, here's this light at the end of the tunnel, like with all the insanity that's being said about Mm -hmm. my case, like it's all bullshit. So like ultimately when it comes down to it, that verdict is going to be Amanda's innocent. She's going to get to go home. Right. I was convinced. Then I was convicted. And from then on out, I was afraid to hope because like the feeling of like devastation for having like my world collapsed when I was convicted, like everything I thought was true about the world and about, you know, how fairness worked, like all yeah. of that disappeared. And I didn't know what I could count on anymore. So I was afraid to hope. And so the entire time that my appeals trial was going on, things were getting, were going well for me during my appeals trial. Like they, in the court um, assigned independent experts to look at the forensics in the case that was hotly debated during the first trial. And lo and behold, the independent experts agreed with our experts saying that all of this evidence was bunk. And ultimately it resulted in an acquittal, but like up to the moment that they said, you are absolved of this crime, I was terrified that I was going to be sent back to prison again and convicted and that I was not, I didn't have hope. I didn't have reason to hope. And so that again, sort of like upset all of my expectations. I was sobbing. Um, and funnily enough, like a lot of people, a lot of the guards who were like help, like yeah. there, they were like, no, no, you won, you won. And I was like, no, I know, I know that I won, <laughs> but they thought I didn't understand because I was just like sobbing. Um, were you highly medicated to keep yourself like, I don't know how you would not be. No, I did not medicate at all. Um, it's funny, like I had a number of panic attacks in prison and it was medication was often pushed on me, but I was in an environment, I was in a survival environment and I could not, first of all, I'm not much of a medication person. Like even when I break, like I've broken my foot playing soccer once and I went like a week without actually going to a doctor because I was like, Oh, you it'll broke be it? fine. Yeah. Yeah. Playing soccer. <laughs> Someone crunched my foot. Um, so I'm not much of a medication person anyway, 
But I also felt like I could not afford not to have my wits about mm -hmm. me. So I just, I, I got through that experience instead by practicing a kind of intuitive mindfulness kind of thing. Like there are a lot of different weird strategies that I just invented for myself that I now realize because psychologists I've talked to have been like, oh my God, you know, that's, a, that's an actual therapeutic strategy. But like, I would have like conversations with a younger version of myself who I was like coaching through the, like, basically I would say, hey, younger Amanda, this is what is going to happen to you. And this is how you're going to get through it. And I basically sort of big sistered myself through the experience as I was living it. And I didn't always have answers for her. Like, and it's right. funny, like I had a very vivid imagination and I would like really, really, when you're alone in a cell, you get a very I, vivid I can imagination. Only, I can't even imagine, right? <laughs> so like, she was always like really confused. Like, what are you talking about? That is so absurd. And I'd be like, no, no, like, believe me, this is gonna happen to you. Yeah. And this is how you're gonna deal with it. And that's sort of how I took this experience that felt so overwhelming and on top of me, and I put it in front of me. Yeah. And I took this sort of like disassociative meta stance away from it so that I could look at it, not from a, a, a place of like desperation, but from a place of genuine curiosity. And in that way, oddly sort of becoming like one step removed from it, I was able to have a more global perspective of it, which isn't to say that I wasn't desperately sad and I woke up every day feeling sad and sort of having to convince myself that like life was still worth living. Yeah, um, but you could, that's a very mature way of dealing with something when you're very young. I mean- I'm lucky. I honestly feel like I'm lucky yeah. um, that I had like the sort of disposition to come up with that. Um, not everyone does and not everyone like this is something I actually um, was talking with Joe Rogan about because he was like, wow, you know, this experience really like made you a really strong person. And I was like, yeah, but it didn't have to. It also could have utterly broken me mm -hmm. and I could have come out of this experience like a broken, angry, sad like hating the world person. And I would have been entirely justified to come out that way. Yeah, you would. So you just got lucky, you feel. Or I got lucky and I didn't want that. Like one of the sort of things that I've constantly done is like pushed back against this experience. I didn't want this experience to define me. And that also means that I didn't want it to change me in a way that I didn't want. I wanted control over at the very least myself. Mm -hmm. If I couldn't control my life circumstances, I wanted some semblance of control. And the only thing I had control over was my own mind. Yeah. I didn't even have oh. control over my own body really. So Right, because everything was like they would say, do this, do that, do that. Like yeah, you couldn't yeah. do anything. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, maybe it's also a testament, maybe how you know, how you grew up and your you know, relationship with your family. And yeah, I think that's a lot that's also very key because the feeling that I wasn't worthless. Mm -hmm. Like my family always conveyed to me, like, we love you, we care about you. What is happening to you is not fair. We're, we're fighting for you. Right. That was a sort of constant in the back of my mind reassurance that what was happening to me shouldn't have been happening. Right. That I deserved better. And that made me not sort of internalize as much the kind of victim blaming that was being pushed on me right. all the time. Like, you're a bad person. This is why this is happening to you. This is your fault. Like, I get that all the time. And 
I think to some extent I've internalized some of that, but it's thanks to my family that I've not inter- internalized all of it. Right. No, they kind of kept you sane. Yeah. More from our guests, but first a few words from our sponsor. So, you know, when you're working at a startup, you don't have time. And it's also quite difficult to keep track of all the different documents and systems and tools and apps you use every single day. And that's why I'm so happy to tell you guys about Notion. It provides one clear, central space for your team to stay organized, share all the information, and do their work. So you can get way more done as you move forward together. For startups, Notion can provide a full-on operating system for running every aspect of your company, keeping everyone aligned as you grow fast and take on way more. Are you interested? Want to find out more? Notion is running a special offer just for startups. Get up to $1,000 off Notion's team plan by going to notion.com slash startups. To give you a sense, that's almost a year of free Notion for a team of 10. Again, that's notion.com slash startups to receive up to $1,000 in free credit to use Notion with your team. That's up to a thousand dollar value, guys, when you go to notion.com slash startups. That's N-O-T-I-O-N dot com slash startups. How about your friends back home, like in, in America? Like mm-hmm. would they support Super supportive. Super supportive. Like once a week I had a 10-minute phone call. Um, that, that was all the phone calls I was allowed once a week, 10 minutes. I didn't get to decide the time the prison did, but it was the same time every week. It was 6 AM Seattle time. And so all of my friends would come over the night before, spend the night at my parents' house and all be there to hear me talk to my family. Really? While for that 10 minute phone call. So they would all be on that phone call for you. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, how many people were that? How many friends was that? Filled up the house, people sleeping on the floor. Yeah. And do you still speak with those people? Are they still close with you now to this day? Um, yeah, several of them have like gone on and done different things. So I don't see them very often. No, but, but you're yeah. still friends with them. Or yeah. Wow. So you really had a big support system that really kind of helped keep, keep you sane. Yeah. And like, and gosh, I like it's, I've, my family and friends have had a lot of patience because it's not just, it wasn't just the prison part. Mm-hmm. Like even after I come, came home, um, navigating how to sort of be in a relationship with me, given this like insane, like I, I'm even just starting to mm-hmm. unpack how, not just how it's, how what happened impacted everyone in my family and my friends and how they were personally impacted, but also how our relationship was impacted because ultimately like I was gone. I was gone. I was not a part of people's lives for years on end. And in that process, everyone grew and changed. And the thing that we had in common was this, like this struggle. But once the struggle is gone and you haven't had that, like just daily connection with the person, like what is your relationship built on? So true. So, so what happened? I mean, it's an ongoing process. It must have been been, like, I can only, you're a hundred percent. So true. (laughs) Even in like everyday life, right? Like, if you don't, people grow apart and if they have one, like one core thing that keeps them together and that thing is no longer there, yeah. then what do you, what's your relationship? Like, what is it based around? Yeah. Especially when you think like a lot of my friends and family 
like had this idea, like the person I was that they right. were friends with, that they were, their relationship was, was a person who hadn't yet gone through that experience. And then I came home and as try as I might to just go back to the life I had before, that life didn't exist anymore. And that person didn't exist anymore. I was changed. I was not changed the way that the prison system wanted me to, which right. was to break me, but I was changed. And it's taken me all this time to this day to try to figure out how I've changed and why, and is that okay? And do I feel like I really have control over that? Or are there like inevitably things that I, I don't like about myself that I've taken from this experience? Like one of the things that I'm trying to work on right now is trying as a, a psychologist, um, actually just recently sort of gave me a term for this. Um, he said that I show signs of a thing called vulnerable narcissism, which sounds crazy, but like what it is, is a feeling of perpetual shame and blame. I'm the kind of person who will apologize for everything because I constantly feel like everything is my fault. And that's a kind of narcissism where you think like, oh, what you're feeling and what you're feeling and what you're feeling, it must be my fault. I'm so sorry. And maybe it's not my fault. Maybe you're just having your own day right. and I have nothing to do with it. And like, but I feel like this perpetual need to apologize for things that I, that even don't have anything to do with me. Because you're so used to it. That's been like- I'm so used to being blamed. Yeah. So that's, you take it upon yourself. So is that's it- That's how I've like weirdly internalized this experience. And it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for my relationships. If I'm constantly feeling like I have personally wronged you, if you're just not having a good day. Right, right, like, right, right. But then I don't know if the word narcissism should be attached to that. Well, narcissism has like, like a nasty connotation, yeah. but ultimately what it means is that- You think you're, it's you, like you're, you're the core of every issue. Yes. So then what, what did the psychologist tell you you can do to ha kind of help that? He, um, he suggested to me that um, I continue sort of my stoic meditation practice, which is what I do. What's um, what is that, stoic meditation? Um, so meditation in general I is know, just I, sitting with yourself and course, being present. There's a million types of meditation. Right. So what's um, that kind? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's really a kind. It's more like I tend to, um, I am attracted to stoic philosophy. Mm, and so when I'm meditating, I'm thinking often um, in stoic terms. Mm. So like um, uh, one stoic practice is imagining a life that is worse. So say, you know, like say, Everything is the same, but I have cancer. Just imagine that for a moment and now come back to real life. How much better do you feel about your life mm -hmm. now that you don't have cancer? Like that is the kind of practice that get, that helps you sort of trigger feelings of gratitude. No matter what your life circumstances are, you can always, always, always find opportunity to have gratitude if you do things like negative visualization. Um, I like that. You know what? Can I tell you something? I've been doing this podcast and this stuff for many years mm -hmm. and I've never heard of anyone say anything about negative visualization before. Yeah. There's always, there's a, there is this like sense of like, imagine your best life 100%. and get there. That is so, <laughs> that to me makes more sense, the negative visualization than probably, because I'm not a very like, you know, the whole like meditating and manifesting and visualization. Like I feel these words are so tired. Like everyone just use them as like placeholders yeah. when they're trying to like speak about their, you know, you know, they're journaling or whatever. Sure, sure. So like, I've, 
And like, so when you say this negative, uh, the, the negative visualization, that actually like resonates with me because you're right. You're taking yourself in a worse situation mm-hmm. to come back to where you actually are. Yeah. And you do, you feel better. Like when you just said that thing about the cancer, yeah. I like you felt like, it gutturally. Like, oh no, no. Yeah, I did. <laughs> like I was like, it's, I felt like when you're like, but you're, but. Or you have kids and it's like, imagine if you lost one of your kids. hundred percent. Okay. Let's like, yeah, knock sorry. On sorry, wood, sorry, knock sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I totally, that makes, that is so impactful. I wrote, I'm going to write that down. And now like, now you just like want to hug your, your daughter or your, or your son. You want to like have sympathy for the person who's like acting out in the grocery line, because you can also do negative visualizations for another person. You can see someone who's not having a good day and go, you know what? They have cancer. And then you're like, oh shit, that explains why they're really not having a good day. Yeah, you can do that. Where did you learn? Where did you see this? Where did you hear about this negative, negative? visualization? Yeah. Um, oh, uh, this is really bad that I don't remember the the name. No, you don't have to. But. Of the guy, but I was um, I was doing like these like stoic challenges with my husband when we were um, pregnant, where we would also one of the, another stoic practice is you sort of put give yourself challenging experiences so that you can, first of all, have gratitude for whatever experience that you have on the day to day. Like it is very easy to sort of get into this jaded mindset in your own grind. And so you give yourself a sort of, not a negative experience, but a challenging experience Mm -hmm. that sort of kickstarts your your sort of survival instinct, like instincts, even if it's just like you're the type of person who doesn't go for a run, Yeah, go for a run, struggle, feel like shitty through it. And then by the end of it, you're like, damn, I did something new today. And that was challenging and I feel better for it. That, that's, yeah. that's a good one too. I like that. I really like I, I Where do I find a list of these stoic challenges? Just Google that because um, I'll, I think- I'll send you, I'll send you a link to the book that I was reading. It's really short, short and sweet. Um, and also I, um, use Sam Harris's meditation app and there is like a stoic track. So you can just like sit there and listen mm. to like five minute meditations on like different stoic ideas. I like that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Totally not what I was expecting to hear from you today, but that's really, really helpful. Uh, so where was I going with this then before we got into this whole negative visualization? you were saying something. I about, forget. Oh, I know. <laughs> about what we're talking about how like you, you've changed as a person and like you, when you came out, obviously like mm-hmm. you're, the whole vulnerable narcissism thing. Yes. Right. Yes. And then what are some other ways you think you've changed Mm. that like you Um, noticed? Well, so one of the things that I have been navigating is trying to remember that I can be a proactive person instead of a reactive person. Mm. So like while I was on trial, I was rendered utterly helpless and my entire life was revolving around having to react to these accusations that are just happening to me. And today... I am very, very intentional about the work that I put out in the world. I have a podcast called Labyrinths Mm -hmm. where I interview other people who similarly have felt like they are lost and they are navigating an experience that is overwhelming to them and that they don't know where to go. And they are feeling like their identity is being lost in the process because like that's one of the things about trauma especially is that it's a thing that happens to you that you don't have control over and then becomes the thing that you're about like oh i was raped now i'm a rape victim and that's like the biggest thing about me and it has nothing to do with me it's because some other person like acted badly towards me like i don't want that to be my life i don't want that to be me that is that me it's that me now like that question like that processing for me is a fascinating project, not just for myself, but also for other people. And I know, I know, I know, I know that not everyone 
is on the same like stage or ability to like articulate those ideas for themselves. Like a lot of people mm -hmm. reach out to me and ask me like, how do you do, like, how do you even process this? And it's yeah. like, well, maybe you just need to talk to a younger version of yourself, or maybe we can just talk and we can find out what your perspective is. Cause I think a lot of people who have been through like crazy intense experiences want to like the only thing that they can have a control over is the narrative about their own life mm -hmm. that they tell themselves. Even if they don't have control over where that narrative takes them, their perspective, that meta layer is the thing that any one of us has control over at mm -hmm. any time. Um, that's that presence and not everyone is like super, it's, it's not intuitive, to, like how to achieve that, that presence and that perspective, but anyone can do it. And sometimes it just takes someone across from them asking the right questions. Yeah, no, I think that's actually very true. What you just said a hundred percent at like, you just nailed it because I, so your podcast is basically about that people's experiences dealing with this and a then, big overwhelming experience, whatever it is, what, twists and turns. And they're like, what is happening? Right. And that they have zero control. Like, how do you, so from, cause obviously do you see, did you see a therapist for a while or do you still see a therapist? Like what's amazing to me is like, yes, the fact that you like had these, um, these ways, these like rituals or like these, like these ways to kind of like deal with your situation while it was happening. They were like, I think so mature, but like even that, that you can even, even like acknowledge that whole thing that you just said is to me, like, again, that you have such, you have a lot of self-awareness. I guess when you're, you're stuck in, in jail, you can think about all this stuff, but mm -hmm. a lot of people just don't have like, is that what, were you always like that? I guess is my question. Like, did you always, were you innately a person that was kind of self-aware who kind of figured that stuff out before all this stuff happened? And like, cause you seem to be really good at like analyzing you and figuring out like ways to kind of help yourself be mm. better in any way. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think that I, I, you were I was young. I know you I were, was very young. Yeah. Um, I think that the one thing that I had, I had learned from a young age and this is from like soccer really, yeah. was the experience of like confronting physical difficulty. So like I had a really intense coach who would push us and push us and push us. And so while I did not have like a sense like of justice pushing me and challenging me in way and emotionally in ways that I was unready for, I did have the experience of being pushed physically and having to like be able to process how to get through it. So like one of the first things that I did when I was like finally figuring out like, oh, this is taking a long time. Like I don't, this, I'm not getting out tomorrow was I would just like start every day with like, I think I can, I think I can. Like the little engine that could yeah. bullshit. Like, I think I can, not I can, I think I can. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> not I, that absolutely I, I can. I think I can get through this day and just sort of like that, that was kind of my internal mantra for a while. And then when I started realizing that, well, maybe I'm going to have to tell myself that for the rest of my life, then I started asking why. And I got very, very curious about like the human condition and human psychology and how good mm. people can hurt innocent people and still think they're doing the right thing. And like trying to navigate why that was happening. It took me a long time to figure it out. It's not like I had like had a moment of inspiration. It's just, I feel like I was sort of forced into a mindfulness space because mm. I had to occupy my time. 
I had so much time and I was not drugging myself. I was not watching soap operas. I was reading books and sitting around thinking, and I was journaling a lot. And so I spent a lot of time in my own head. I got a very good relationship with myself. Mm. And since I've come home, I've started a meditation practice where it's not even like, it's not even about writing anything down. It's just about noticing. So just like sitting with yourself for 10 minutes a day and just noticing where your mind goes and not judging it, not feeling guilty or not guilty for the things that you're thinking about, just like observing what's happening mm -hmm. and just allowing yourself a space to just exist for a moment. And that, that just like breath gives you an insane amount of appreciation for existence, perspective, and also compassion for other human beings. Because I think a lot of the time, the way that good people hurt other people is we get so caught up with our own existence that we forget that other human beings are impacted by us. Or we sort of justify and blah, and I'm too busy to think about that. And like, we don't pause. We don't pause and we, and we just constantly push and we just need to pause. And I think a lot of harm would be reduced in the world if a lot more people just paused before they pushed. Before they, that's a good way of putting it. Look at you, Amanda. Ah. Uh, no, like, <laughs> great. So do people recognize you when you go out now? Like, do they know who you are? I mean, a lot of people recognize me, but don't know where don't they, know where they recognize me. They, I just tell I've like I have that face that everyone recognizes. Like, does it happen daily? Like, are you like people are like oh, I think I know you? Or? Well, I don't go out much. I like I don't. That's yeah. another thing that like is very different. Actually, that's a huge thing that's different. When I was a when I was before all this experience, I really really liked to immerse myself in crowds. I really liked to people watch. I like there's this uh, market in Seattle called the Pike Place Market. That's like this bustling sort of um, you know farmer marketplace with crafts and things like that. I loved to go there after school and just meander, just watch people, just yeah. enjoy the presence of people. And now I, I feel very claustrophobic around people and I tend to isolate myself. Um, maybe that's something I need to work on is that feeling of like claustrophobia that I get when I'm in crowds, especially in enclosed spaces. Oh, I do for not sure. like being in enclosed spaces. I do not like not knowing where the exit door is. Like it's, it's very challenging for me. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I sort of live in a kind of isolated space where I have like a safe sort of place to disappear to. I feel like I feel still feel today, like the need to disappear sometimes. Really? Mm -hmm. So is it, how do you meet people now? Like First of all, you were saying earlier, like a while ago, about how people could be very cruel and they say terrible things. Like when you go when you go out and about, do you notice that it's more of a, of a negative? If they do net, uh, recognize you, or is it a more of a positive? Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry for you. Which one do you get more of? Um, I, definitely more positive. Okay. Like in person, it's more positive. Okay. It's the digital space that tends to be very negative. And then like there's this middle ground space where it's neither like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. It's, or, oh my God, I hate you. It's more of like, oh my God, I'm like, really want to talk to you right now about the worst experience of your life. And like, you down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> you know. So like, I, I, I don't know. I, I try to acknowledge that like, where people are coming from, from a place of curiosity is not a bad thing. Like what that means is that's an opportunity for that person to care 
about a broader issue that doesn't just impact me. It impacts lots of people. So I try to be very accommodating of that, but it can be exhausting sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you know what I have noticed again, maybe this is because now I knew you were coming on, but that recently there's been more press around you than there was for the last few years. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, uh, it's curious that that happened. And it's I think it happened because of Stillwater. Like, I think is that, that why? Well, in like before that, um, nothing was really going on. Like I was just doing my, I was doing my podcast. I've, I've been working really hard and interviewing lots of really cool people. Like I had LeVar Burton on and I had like, um, I had Brent Spiner on, like I had all these really interesting people yeah. on and not that many people were p- really paying attention. But then as soon as I called out this, like the, the movie, this movie and, but not just the movie, like I, I was sort of pointed to other examples of people having done this in my life and Stillwater was just the latest blockbuster example. Right, right. I was like, Hey, here's an issue that is a broad issue that I think we should all reflect upon. And for some reason, like I've been actually pointing this kind of thing out for a long time. Right. I don't know what it is about this moment, but it was resonating with people. Like people paused and were like, Oh, I'm either a storyteller or a story consumer, and I've never thought about it from this way. And that that was actually really encouraging to me because it told me, oh, maybe there is a shift happening in our culture. And, you know, we see this with like Monica Lewinsky being the producer of her own show impeachment. Like this is the first time we are seeing shamed human beings being given a voice in their own narratives. And that's something that like really, really matters to me. It's something that I'm doing on my podcast. Right. And the fact that like people are actually thinking, oh, there's something to this is a really good sign. I think that means like we're all sort of deeply appreciating each other's humanity even while we still exist in these sort of like online echo chambers that are constantly vilifying other totally. people. Totally. Um, I think maybe it's a little bit of a reaction to that. Like there are these fake ideas about people that are out in the world and maybe it's sort of like everyone's sort of feeling it a little more personally now yeah. because we all feel a little bit more in danger of that. Well, it's funny you mentioned Monica Lewinsky because you're mm-hmm. right. Uh, she has that, she got that, Peach, she's the producer of that show. And again, I feel like her whole image has has been a little bit more morphed a little bit since recently, too, probably yeah. because of that. And maybe because she had a more of a voice. Well, and because she's like filled out that cartoon cutout that yeah. everyone made her out to be like just the like punchline that she was for years oh, and not terrible. like a fleshed out human being. She was just a dick sucker. Yeah, like, exactly. Oh, my God. And, he, <laughs> and, and to, to your point before, it's like he Clinton never got nearly the same type of ridicule. It like, was the Lewinsky. He affair. was exactly. It was the Lewinsky affair. Who And it's uh, like Lewinsky wasn't having an affair. Yeah, Clinton was exactly Bill, and he was the president. And she was just you know an intern at the at the White House. She but was so young. She was so young, same age as you probably. She when was twenty three when it happened, so she was like a few years old. But like, can you imagine twenty three year old suddenly like the oh it's, sex devil basically it's, like it's um but by the way uh you you had it worse. You went to jail for it. You know you had the same type of thing, but the same to the same point like you become of you become like this like caricature of yourself mm-hmm. and people only know you for that like to this day i hate to say it monica lewinsky you know like 
that's the only thing that I ever think about or remember about her, even yeah. though. And even though she's given this position of totally. like empowerment to tell her own story, it's still that story. It's still that story. That's my point. That was my point. That even with her being the produ executive producer of, of impeachment, which is, by the way, doing very well. Mm -hmm. And yes, and she always was a very smart girl. No one ever thought that she wasn't, right? Because she to be, a, you know, to be a, even an intern for the White House, you can't be a dummy, right? But no one cares. I mean, it's always about that story. Mm -hmm. Even why she's getting some, you know, good credit now is still about the same, same thing. Over right. And she over. had to do that first. And granted, like she's now like good for her doing other things. Is she? Like, I don't even know. Have you seen 15 Minutes of Shame? No. Is that hers? That's a documentary that she produced. And it's not about her. She like the sort of down. the first like two minutes of the documentary are her saying, I'm Monica Lewinsky and I'm interested in shame because I've experienced it well, personally. Yeah, Let me down. explore these stories of other people who have been publicly shamed. And that's that's the documentary. Where is it? All, where is it being? Uh, that's a good question. I bet if you Google it. I heard of it, though. I Do you am. know where it's boo? HBO. Oh, it's HBO. Yeah. So you should be doing something like that, you know? Well, I'm, like I'm just that's saying. That, well, that's the interesting thing. It, 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 that is to say that, like, I actually have been pursuing a lot of these ideas and trying to talk about them. But do you get the opportunity? I think yeah. a lot of people think that, oh, I could do whatever I wanted if I wanted to. Well, I will tell you that, like, I've been coming to, you know, L.A., New York for years proposing ideas. And what I found is the Tom McCarthy's of the world are given the mm. the resources to tell these stories and people like me are not. And maybe that's changing now. Um, that's interesting. I wonder why that is. Well, well, I, I come with a lot of I come with a stigma. I come with a ball and chain attached. And for a long time, a lot of people have like taken the meeting with me. But ultimately, like, does someone want to be associated with me and all the baggage I carry. Does someone think mm -hmm. that they can maybe even see the value in me personally, but can they convince the broader public to take me seriously? And that's like the problem is that I have been pigeonholed as a tabloid character for so long that even if I prove myself otherwise, people still associate me with tabloid. Yeah. And I hope that that's changing. I do like, this has been like my husband's like crusade really, <laughs> really? He, he more than anyone else is just like it's not fair like you it deserve to do like great things you have a great perspective and like if only you people are. would give you the chance and i'm just and you're like, a smart girl like even like listening to you speak you're very articulate and mm -hmm. you're like no it's true if you were just get going i didn't mean to interrupt you i i i, I agree with you husband over there <laughs> you know yeah no well, go on i want to hear what you're going to say because you're going to say if they just gave you the chance right that, well yeah. like so today what i'm what i've been empowered to do today is to have an independent podcast like me and my husband, it is just us, like literally just yeah. us. Occasionally we have like a, a, an audio engineer friend of ours at this point who we farm out some of the audio engineering work. But like you have a nice cast of characters here who's helping you out. Hey, <laughs> hey, you've got lights, you've got well, cameras. Yeah. We don't. We just have the two of us and we people reach out to us, want to share their stories. And we do the very best we can with the resources that we have. And we do it entirely independently. Real, okay. I want to ask you about this. This is actually very interesting because I did see the New York times piece that was done after the Atlantic, right? Okay. So that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like in the last little while for you were, I saw the Joe Rogan and thing, thanks, the New York thanks times. to the Atlantic for publishing this piece that I wrote, because there's no guarantee that that will ever happen. Oh, right? yeah. so it was like, great though. You. It was great. I, I'm telling you, I put you, you're you so articulate. You you did, a, you're a grid writer. Thank you. And you're welcome. And then uh, last week was the New York times thing. 
what I found super interesting in that was I, like you would think by what, and that's what I was saying earlier, there's been tons of documentaries, tons of different movies we know you're not getting paid for. You didn't get paid from Italy from what the wrongful conviction. The only really big paycheck it sounds like you've ever gotten was that big book advance for yes. like 4 million or 3.8 million. 3.8 yeah. million. Yeah, Harper Collins was great. Loved working with them. It was a really great opportunity for me to sort of like just address the facts of the case from my own perspective. Right. I felt like that was super important. I thought that was going to be the only time that I would ever tell my story because I thought, okay, I'll just put myself out there and then I'll go back to my quiet little life. Right. Well, of course, the world didn't let me go back to a quiet little life. So, right. And then, and then what I also found was like, actually, I had this really interesting moment. Um, I was taking poetry classes. And I found myself constantly writing poetry that was about this stuff. It was about prison. It was about identity. It was about feeling like I no longer had control over my own life. And I was like, you know what? I'm not done processing this. Yeah. And you know what? I feel like I have a red flag, like sort of alarm system now whenever I see it happening to other people too. Right. And I've slowly turned that into trying to do good work. Like that perspective that I have I've tried to turn into good work. Yeah. And and this is what I have to show for. And this way, well, first of all, I was going to say that that sounds like a lot of money to most people, but then you have to pay back all oh, these yeah. all these other people. So you ended up with what 200,000 of the 3. Point, is that actually accurate? Yeah, yeah, that that, that like around that number, yeah. Yeah. You so pay, uh, I was paying off my families for all the things that they had. I had ongoing legal bills. I had, I had, um, you know, agent fees, I had taxes. And like at the end of it all, I was able to take home around $200,000. And the book sold well? Books sold well, I think, um, I mean, it was on the New York Times bestseller list, but I can't, I don't know how many copies. Like, What year was that book though? 2013? It was 2013. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. So with all this good that you wanna do, how are you like surviving? How are you making money? I would imagine you yeah. have a new baby. Yep. So it's not like $200,000 can't really get you that far for 10 years of well, your life. Let's, I mean. let's be like honest. I'm doing well compared to a lot of exonerees. Like a lot of exonerees come out of prison after like 40 years with a garbage bag and no one gives a shit. That's true. So like, that's us acknowledge that. I'm only saying that given how famous or notorious you were, are, you would imagine you'd have so many deals where people are throwing money at you, especially given well, if you go on Netflix. It depends on the deal, right? Like there are a lot of people who want to treat me like a tabloid object. That's true. So are right? you turning down a lot of shit, basically? I'm turning down things that I feel are either unethical or irresponsible media. And so like, or things that I just don't want to. I don't want to do like, I don't want to do a porn. I have yeah. nothing against porn. Oh, but that, but like, that's what you were offered. I was offered porn opportunities. I was offered like dancing with the stars yeah. and I love dancing, but I like, got, I don't I got, need totally to be on it. dancing with the star. Like no offense to dancing with the stars. Smart just girl. Like, How did you know not to do that? Um, I mean, I, first of all, I'm not a celebrity. And so the idea of that show is celebrities dancing with professionals and I'm not a celebrity. Like what I am known for is a horrible crime that I didn't commit. Right. And so like, I already know that I'm in a, a reputational grave and I'm having to claw my way out of it like a zombie. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> and exactly. like, I have to be very mindful of like the kinds of things that I invest myself in. Totally. And I want 
again, to do good work. I want to have a good impact. And I'm not going to do that by like dancing frivolously. I'm going to do that by speaking about big issues and, and writing and helping other people find their voice and fundraising for the innocence project. And like, these are the ways that I'm doing it. And like, I've had to sort of fight tooth and nail to have those opportunities. Now, granted, like when my husband first met me, I was making minimum wage, working in like a tiny hole in the wall bookstore and feeling like I could not, I did not have like an opportunity to have anything else, but like a, a very hidden existence. What year was this? That was back in, I met him in 2015. We started dating in early 2016. So it was like early 2016 that he was like, you know what, Amanda, you get to have a bigger life than the little small hidden life that you have. Like you can do stuff like you deserve to do stuff. I was writing for like a local newspaper Aww, and like, that is so nice. Um, he's, so he's like my biggest believer. And, um, he sort of has constantly been like convincing me that I can do great things. And, um, and I'm trying to live up to that. That so. is really I know I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to cry because I think that's like actually so heartfelt and like he, so basically you were working in a, in a small bookstore behind like, mm -hmm. and where, how did you meet him though? He was at the bookstore. Uh, no, he, um, he's a published author. And so I reviewed his book for the local paper and, um, and then I, you know, so he like, he's got a great experience because like he he's not a true crime guy. He's a poetry guy, right? Like he's a poetry oh, wow. guy. Um, and he sort of came into this world, my world and was like, you know what? I'm not going to Google you. I'm just going to hang out with you and be a person with you. And he then like, we, we eventually started dating and, um, and he was getting like called boy toy and tabloids and like, you know, being like people photoshopping knives into pictures of him and like people oh saying that God. he must be a psychopath for wanting to date a psychopath. And like, so he slowly had to like figure out what was going on with this case, but like he did not want to see me through the tabloid lens, through the, the lens of the case. He was just like, hey, you're a real person and you're worth spending time with and I enjoy spending time with you. So let's just get to know each other. And that, that, he was one of the first like friends, like actual friends that I made post exoneration when I felt like maybe I would never be able to make friends like a normal person ever again. So like he sort of made me believe a little bit, not just in humanity, but also in myself. Oh my gosh. That is such a, that's so nice. What is your name? By the way? <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Robinson. <laughs> what was your book called? War of the Encyclopedists. Oh my God. That is a really, that is such a night and, and you can tell by the way you even said it how like heart like how authentic and true that is right and like, like how much of a gift that was like that is not something i take for granted no absolutely not i mean and so because from that from, from that did you quit the job at the bookstore what did I you quit do? the job um and like right around that time i also um and this is like so much, so many props to, um, broadly, which no longer exists even, but broadly was vices like women's interest arm. And they were like, Hey, Amanda, we heard you kind of write about stuff. Like, do you want to write about like women in prison for our like little online newsletter basically? And so I started writing articles for them and that's how I got into the Scarlet Letter reports. And I did this like Facebook vice series yeah. where I interviewed other shamed women. 
And so I did that. And then from there, I springboard and started doing other writing articles, other journalism. I started just pursuing opportunities to like get my voice out there. Yeah. And I, I landed upon a true crime series where I was like telling the stories of true crime, like true crime stories, but really trying to hone in the perspective towards those who were directly involved and not like the sort of like salacious, mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to drink wine and like ruminate about a crime that I know nothing about. Like, right. I really wanted to focus it on like, what is the direct human impact of how we are telling these stories of true crime? I started doing that. And then from there, Chris and I um, developed labyrinths and we've been like broadening the scope of like the kinds of stories that we're telling. So I'm not just telling true crime stories, which I don't, I don't want to just tell true crime stories. I want to tell stories of like human depth and experience. And I feel like the, the danger of even just like constantly being pigeonholed into true crime is feeling like only there's a special kind of person who experiences true crime. And and there's only people who are directly impacted who could truly understand what that experience is like. And I want to push back against that and say, we've all been through shit. Mm -hmm. We all know what it feels like. And you can understand what it feels like to be wrongly accused. So like we're all, we all are implicated by the way the criminal justice system right. impacts us, but also we can all understand it. We don't have to feel like it's a separate entity from us. Like we, anyone can be wrongly accused. Anyone can go to jail. Anyone can, because you anyone. you were that, you represent that to people, which is actually maybe another thing that people are scared because it, it can easily have been them. Yeah. Because you were just like, a, yeah. just, you were the girl next door and it yeah. happened to you. And people don't want to sometimes even, even think of that possibility for themselves i agree right and so it's like it's easier just to kind of push it away and be like i'm not like her or uh then how else are you making money besides are you making money from the podcast from labyrinth so um yeah we have a few we have a patreon subscription we have how does that work patreon is it like do they pay a monthly fee uh, yeah. So okay. monthly um, subscribers can decide like their different tiers. I yeah. want to do $5 a month or $10 a month, whatever it is. So they can decide what they want to um, pitch in. And then, um, so our Patreon is Knox, um, <laughs> patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Yeah. If you want to be a subscriber um, and you get like, if you subscribe, like our podcast is free, so anyone can listen to it. But if you want to support us, you can subscribe. And then you also get access to like special content. Like Chris and I put out, um, uh, every week we do, um, something called mind food where we like go out into the world and we try to find things that are worth reading or worth listening to. And we like Mm. basically recommend them to our subscribers or, um, Chris and I debate, we do a thing called who's right where um, we like take a question and we just debate it between us That's to show fun. like friendly, what even like friendly debate can look like. Yeah. Because there's this sense of like, if we're not agreeing with each other, we can't have a conversation. That's it's what's like, happening in the world right now. Exactly. So we're trying to yeah. push back against that and say, actually it's worthwhile to debate ideas just for that sake, just to be in the practice of being okay and not feeling like your identity is at stake with every conversation that you ever have. Yeah, because actually it's very timely. I feel like it's especially like, God forbid that you're on one side of something and I'm on another. It would, it's, it's, it's deadly now. People oh, yeah. will like, people will just not, family members, friends like are like rooting for like over like, if you're vaccinated and not vaccinated, mm-hmm. God forbid you bring up that topic or politics. I mean, anything is so, everything is so d- divisive mm-hmm. that like, you can't even have any kind of real debate now unless you're talking even even if i said I, i'm a gluten-free i don't want vegan right, not right. vegan to anything 
Yeah. So I love that you're doing that. That's Thanks. great. Yeah. No, I think amazing. it's a good practice. Yeah. And then how else do you guys make money? Um, occasionally that? I'm invited to like speak about oh. my experience, do public speaking appearances. So that that's a big thing. That's so. a good one. Do yeah. you have a good speech? Do you have an agent? I do have an agent. Um, also people just reach out to me personally. Right. Personally. So you'd make yeah. a great speaker. I well, think. the Resilience. challenge, the challenge with that is that, um, to honestly convey the experience, I have to sort of break my own heart every time I do it. So it's not like oh. I can go on a speaking tour, right? Like I try to keep the number of times that I do a public speaking event at a minimum because it is deeply, deeply challenging for me. Um, and it involves me being in front of lots of people and I don't love being in big groups of people. Oh, that's right. So my ideal world is one in which I get to stay at home and work on my podcast and like try to like, share stories. And I'm also like imagining lots of really cool ways to like tell my story even. Like I think there are a lot of ways that um, it's not fully been tapped into either because the focus has always been on did she or didn't she do it? And it's like, well, how about the experience of what it's like to survive prison? Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it feels like? Like, no. But I know, yeah, and I can tell you about it, and I have stories. <laughs> I'm sure. I, that's what I, wanted. I wanted one story. I wanted one really good story, actually. Okay. From that. Um, so a good story. Do you want a happy story or a sad story? Mm, how about a? I don't know. A sad story or happy story? How about a happy story? Okay, happy story. Okay. Um. The prison environment, there are there was one separate section and it was for mothers of young children, which meant that in the prison there were toddlers and they there were, were they were kept separate with their mothers who were imprisoned, but they were not separated from their mothers when they were arrested. And so up to about, I think, two years of age, women with very, very young children were kept in prison with their very, very young children. And when I was in isolation, I was very lonely. I would, um, there was actually a separate part of the prison where like, it was like a little garden right near the like chapel that no one ever went into. And it was like very small, but it was where it was the extra space that they had for me to be if I needed to go outside. Like I was, a, I had the right to go outside, but I just, they didn't have a space for me. So they put me there and it had, um, there was like concrete walls on two sides. And then there was a hallways um, that were like bars and then like plexiglass windows. And the toddlers every day in the morning were given a walk around the prison with a nun who volunteered there. So the moms had to stay in their cells, but so the kids didn't always have to stay in their cells. They would just be like toddled around the prison with this nun and just kind of walk in circles around like the, the building. And in the mornings when I was doing my walk in in that little garden area, I would see them passing by through the plexiglass windows. And eventually these little toddlers got used to seeing me and they recognized me because I would do things like clown around for their entertainment when they were walking by. So I would be like, <laughs> like I would just like dance for them yeah, or yeah, sing yeah. for them or whatever it was. And um, so they got to recognizing me. And then one day I happened to be like pulled in like someone needed me to sign some documents or something. So I was at a desk in like the hallway where like they would pass by and they passed by. And one of the little girls was just like, Ecola! and then ran up to me and hugged me because like she had just seen me all so this time, times. had never like actually 
like interacted with me before. It was just through this plexiglass. And then she ran up to me and hugged me. And like, I was like her best friend. Oh my God, that's such a nice story. It was a really, it was a really good experience. It was always like the hardest for me when I was, I miss, I love kids. And like, I miss being around like, you know, young people. And so like her coming up to me and like, also just like treating me for who I am. Right. Like I'm in a prison where I'm considered a monster. And at least this like little girl, like sees me and just hugs me and it's not sad. It's not a sad story. It is, but, it's, <laughs> but that's what I mean. It doesn't have to be sad, but it's emo- it's emotionally charging because of your experience and that someone actually like saw you for you and like l- was excited to see you without knowing anything about anything. Yeah. That's a really good story. I That's like a great that story. story. <laughs> and also, you didn't know that babies were in prison. Uh, I They're was going to say, one minute here. Mom, moms could take babies until uh, what age? I mean, they're both Up babies. until two years old. And then they take the babies away. And where and do they put them? The well, it depends. Do they have family or don't they? And if the ba- if they don't have family, they go to the foster care uh, system. Oh. So. so for the first two years, they can live in the in the jail. cell with the how mom. are they that that's a terrible existence for a baby though it's isn't it? it's different so they're in a separate ward so there are cells but they try to make them a baby friendly they have toys they, they have do. cribs they have things like that and they get to go outside and they get obviously. to go outside in a separate area so they're given they're accommodated more so that the kid doesn't have a traumatized experience but at the same time it's like it's a jail like it's it's a prison it's not like there aren't you know like fun little drawings on the walls. Like it's still a prison. (laughs) I can't even, and also like at two years old being torn apart from your mom and that was your kid. I can't tell you the number of times that like women who had their babies finally ripped away from them, like try to commit suicide in prison. Oh, I I was going to say, it must've been how, uh, that would be one of the sad stories. I would lose my mind. Like I cannot. I I mean, now that you have your own baby, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't even imagine, right? No. No, it's the worst thing I can think of. So that's like, I kind of, by the way, in America, in the U.S., do they have the same type of thing with toddlers in, in jail? Um, I honestly don't know that. Um, I, I mean, it's uh, there at a certain point, you can't take the baby away from like a, a mom, like at a certain, like it's literally like the, they call it the fourth trimester because yeah. like it, it's survival depends uh, yeah. upon being attached to the mom. So I, I imagine that there are similar circumstances um, or they try to give pregnant women or women who have just given birth at least like, um, you know, home arrest or something like that. Like it would make more sense for that. Um, but I, I, I can't actually speak to that. Like, I don't know specific. I, I imagine it's prison to prison. It's different. Um, I do know that there are a lot of programs that try to, connect especially mothers um and that's a whole prejudicial thing like it's considered like the experience like the relationship Mm. between the father and the children is less important than the experience like the relationship between the mother and the children right so in that way there is like a kind of um there's a problem for fathers who are now absent because they're not allowed to be in their kids lives yeah but i do know that there are a lot of programs that try to bring young children in to spend a significant amount of time with their mothers um so it's not just like that one hour once a week experience but it's like they get to be in a playroom with their mom for like five hours or something like that wow okay but it's not the same as living there like in italy wow the systems are so different um, you said some, I, I'm, I'm kind of going back now to close the loop. You said when you used to come here to LA or New York and you meet with people all the time to do like 
projects and then they meet you and then nothing to ever pitch happened. ideas and stuff like that. Right. What, can you tell, I mean, I don't know if you want to, but like, has there, is, what kind of ideas were you pitching? Can there, can you talk about one? Maybe someone will listen and be like, Hey, you know what? <laughs> I want to do that with her. <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. What would be a good example of one? Well, I have, um, are you I'm, still trying to do any of them right now? I, I have a number of things that like are in various stages of like between pitch and development and whatever. Like I have a number of things that I'm working on. Um, so one of them is a, is actually a, um, so one of the things that I've wanted to do is show what it, what it's like to go back into the world after you've been removed from the world for a, such a long time. So that's so interesting. It's Cause what I've noticed is that the exoneree experience is one in which you're exonerated. Yeah. You got out of prison, you eat your first hamburger and then no one cares. Right. Then you go back to the world and no one really understands what your experience is like. And what's interesting is that all exonerees have really different experiences. We all come from different circumstances. We all, either our families are still there and they love us and they take care of us or they don't. And like, you're alone and you're figuring it out. And and yet we have this like one thing in common, this feeling of like what it's, we know what it's like to have our identities and our freedom taken away from us. And how do we translate back that back into the world and the challenges of doing that? Because the world moves at such a fast pace compared to prison. And it's so surreal to mm -hmm. like have a key to your own front door when you haven't been able to open a door for years yeah. like on your own. Someone else always opened it. So like, how do you start dating again when you were wrongly accused of rape? Like these are all questions that I find are super interesting. And I came up with a comedy series for this idea. Like at first it was a drama because I was like, oh, it's really dramatic. But then I was like, you know what? it's even like more surreal and absurd and it's like hilarity, like the kinds of like just random everyday obstacles that people like who have been to prison, like find themselves in the real world and they just think everything is just so silly now. Or I have a silly experience of like, oh, like, oh yeah. I oh my God, that would be amazing. <laughs> right, it would be funny. It would be, so is that, is that like, can I say like, is someone helping you with that that we both talked about already? Um, so that one actually like was going and going and going and then, um, stopped going. What so, happened? Well, like people decided to move on and they said, oh, well, it's like, you know, it's, oh, you pitched it already. I already pitched it. And actually it was, it was taken up by a production company and all of that. But then eventually they decided that, well, this is, it's it's episodic. Everyone wants like something that's going to like take you. They, they want the story that like has a cliffhanger at the end every time. And that, you know, is, um, is easy to make. And this one was more of like a, like my ideal vision of it was every episode you meet a new exoneree who's facing a new challenge. Yeah. And I think that's, that's so interesting. People love that. Anything re regarding any kind of crime is like the biggest area in the world right now. And then to like be the person and like what I wanted to do was sort of like show like maybe at the very beginning or the end of the episode, like this is just a regular person who's yeah. living their life, who's like having their challenges, who's like going on a date and is a little bit nervous leading up to the date. And you sort of only slowly unravel every episode, like what they were accused of. And that is the thing that's coloring their experience. And they're like absurd, like the, the absurd oh visions of the self in the world, or like maybe it's a woman who's going grocery shopping for the, like, and she's just, everyone's sort of like looking at her and you're like, why is everyone looking at her? And she's like picking her apples, looking at them. Like the person looks at her and just, everyone's just like looking at her. And that surreal experience of her, like coming home and just like, <gasps> Like, See, I would totally watch these shows. These are good. Did you come up with these? Yeah, me and me and my husband came up with that idea. So, 
to me, these are great ideas. Well, See, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast. Like those are things I would actually find interesting to watch if yeah. they're done. Like the concept's one thing, right? But then if you're ex- if you if it's executed properly and and great it, actors, like right, yeah. and and the timing of mm-hmm. like the comedic timing, that would be really fun. Yeah. Well, and a great example of this, um, a lot of people are like, well, how do you make something so dramatic, so funny? That's why Tina, Tina Fey did an amazing job with the incredible Kimmy Schmidt. Did you ever of see that? Of course I did. Of course I watched that. Love that show. Yeah. It resonated with me so much. Yes. And it's like so fucking funny. Yeah. And it was, and it did, it did very well. It did very well because it was so, it was like, it, it was a really traumatic experience. People like she had gone through something horrible. She was processing it. She's trying to live in her life. Totally. Like, I this agree. Is, this, this is the exoneree experience as well. You don't think this girl can help you? The one that you're, you know, friends with right now? Oh. <laughs> you know, I say it, oh. I don't even know if I'm allowed to. Oh, I mean, let's let's let her be. But okay. like. But she should help you. Well, I mean, she's already helping me in a million ways just by like being my big sister and, and you know. These are really funny though. Those would be really good shows. Well, I try. <laughs> I mean, see, this is what you made some, you make, you're making some good decisions though, like of what you're not doing. I mean, of course, the porn. How much did they offer you for that porn? Only 20 grand. Come on. Are you joking? I worth know, more right? than 20 Very grand. insulting. Are you serious? <laughs> That's all they offered you? Yeah. I think they, they only really offered me to say, like, we offered Amanda a porno. I think they were just trying to advertise for themselves and they knew I was going to turn it down. So oh, you like, mean like they made an offer that I had to refuse, and then they were like, "Ooh, what if they offered you a million? Would you do it?" Um, I don't think so, um, just because I feel like to this day, unfortunately, like I have no, I, I have friends who work in like who are this, porn stars. <laughs> well, not porn stars necessarily. Well, I like have nothing against porn stars, um, and I feel like the sex industry is not taken as seriously as it could, um, and. But that doesn't say that's just not my industry. It's it's and also after everything that I've been yeah, like, no. called, like it's the last thing I need. That's the last thing. But like you would think, given what you've been called and everything around you, someone would have surely have offered you like a million dollars, not like twenty thousand, which is like a joke. Come on, guys. I mean, you're <laughs> surely she's worth she's worth way more than twenty thousand. Well, but, like I said, I think that they just were making an offer that they knew I would refuse, just so they could have like the moment of publicity of the tabloid saying, "Amen." an ox offered a porno yeah probably so, true although you never know maybe after this episode you'll get offered like you never know right someone will be listening oh maybe i have other really awesome ideas that people should reach out a hundred percent you yeah. have a lot of good ideas actually because you're very smart and you're clever um is there anything else that i could ask you that i haven't asked you already um uh well i guess i asked you already how like living outside of after being exonerated can you give us one story of that would be really interesting of like when you kind of came out like acclimating back into the world i can tell you a quick like joke story okay jokes are fun yeah like um I'm not known for my punchlines my (laughs) husband has been on uh, stand-up and i'm more of a uh, I'm just a silly person. I like to like go to run fair and get in character. Um, but when I first came home, my family was just like so excited. We all gathered at my aunt's house. Like this was like right when I got home, like the day I got home and right. like I'm there, I'm like seeing my cousins who were like, who were infants when I left and now they're like little people. And I'm like 
hanging out with totally overwhelmed and like they have a cake and they bring the cake out and they're like, Amanda, you got to cut the cake. And I was like, you sure about that? Yeah. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> you have to laugh. Like, you, come on. At least you have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. You have to have a sense of humor if you're going to get through life. Like, but you have to. You have to. I mean, to, what, okay, actually, I do have a, one question that I was curious. Like when you left jail, how was that experience? Like when they said that you were free or exonerated, what happened? Like what was that experience? I have experience? a whole podcast episode about that. Really? Yeah. I interview um, the guy Steve Moore who's an ex-FBI agent who actually like helped um, figure out that whole drama because usually what happens when you leave prison is you're given a garbage bag full of your stuff and yeah. you're pushed out the door and you have to like find a bus ticket like that's <laughs> that's the normal way of doing it but because the prison knew that I was like I was being hunted down by paparazzi on top of everything else they um, allowed this FBI, FBI agent with the help of this um, Italian diplomat to like arrange a car to at least drive me out. And of course, like there's a car chase. People are ramming us from behind. We're in the middle of the night. We have to go to a safe house. It's like, this, is, this is an insane story of him like having to orchestrate this whole thing. Um, in the middle then, of the night you left? Yeah, yeah, it was in the middle of the night because like I finally got the verdict at like 11 p.m. Like it was all day that they were deliberating in, in chambers. And then you got back into the, I remember they got, got I brought, you. I was brought back to the prison. What were you um, doing before that? Were you like, like pacing your. Um, so I spent many, many hours in, um, in the office of, with the prison chaplain, who was a friend of mine. Like I'm, I'm an atheist, but he was a very, he is to this day, a very good friend of mine. He was a friend of mine throughout the prison process. Just a very nice man. We played music together. And so he brought me into his office and we just sang songs together, cried together, talked. He was convinced I was going home. He was sure of it. And he was so convinced that he actually um, surreptitiously brought a voice recorder into the prison, which you're not allowed to do, just so he could record my voice again before I was freed. And he was, he was convinced and I was so scared. And then of course I was told I was acquitted. I was freed and I was brought back to the prison to gather my belongings. I was not legally supposed to be there anymore. So they're like, get out, get out, get out. And I had like moments to say goodbye to people. Meanwhile, everyone's like cheering, banging on pots and pans, like screaming. The entire prison was watching this on the news. And so people are going, Liberta, Liberta, like, ah. Um, so I'm like whistling. What are they out. calling you? Liberta? No, Liberta, freedom, oh, freedom, freedom, freedom. It's a tradition that oh. we always did when someone left. But this was like the entire prison complex, the men's side. Like they had never met me before, but they watched on TV and were like, so everyone's going nuts. And I'm whisked out, thrown into a car, and then it's a car chase. And then my mom's thrown into the car and she's like, call people on the phone. And I'm like, I don't know how to use a cell phone anymore. And like, ah. Oh <laughs> so my it was gosh. just like so overwhelming. I have, it's, it's a great story. I go into it in like lots of detail on my podcast. That is a really good story. Yeah. I'm going to go listen to that episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. And it's also like the kind of behind the scenes work. And it's it's so interesting to hear it from his perspective, because here's a person who volunteered his time to my family to help us. And he had never met me before. He had no idea who I was. And he describes what it was like when we finally got to that safe house. And we were like, it was me, my mom, him, and like the person who was hosting us in Rome. And he sort of saw, like, sort of knocked on the door to, like, check on me and my mom. We were in one room. And I couldn't sleep. Like, I was, like, pumped on adrenaline. Like, I just could not sleep. I was almost, like, I, I won't tell you. I don't want to give it away because I want you to listen to the podcast episode. But he comes in 
And he's like, Amanda, why aren't you sleeping? And I told him why. And he was just like, so I'm going to let you listen to that. That's a great cliffhanger. See, you could do it. You can figure out ways to do cliffhangers. That's so interesting. Okay, I am. I actually want to listen to it after this this whole thing because now I am. I'll send you a link. Will you promise? Because I'm that's I'm actually really curious about Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and he's a great guy, and he has lots of crazy like FBI stories that are fun too. I love that. I love that. Okay, Amanda, how do people find more of, I mean, if they, how do people find more information? They can listen to Labyrinth, obviously. Yeah, so Labyrinth um, is free, available to everyone. You can um, follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. You can follow me on Twitter um, at Amanda Knox and also on Instagram at Amama Knox. Oh. Amanda Marie Knox. It wasn't like mama. I just like uh, A-M-A-M-A Knox, Amanda Marie Knox. Well, I'm going to say this is was truly, I think, if not like in my top three, fa- top two favorites, because <laughs> thanks. <laughs> you're so because first of all, because you're also so real and honest and like uh-huh. authentic, and I, you, there's not there's it's just it's a it was so nice to talk to you. Oh, thank you, I appreciate. No, it. No, really, I, I and like, thanks for accommodating like my mom brain because like I'm just so tired. Uh, right uh, now. Okay, <laughs> if, if this is your mom brain, I can't, I can't even imagine what your brain is when you didn't just give birth like 16 weeks ago or whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> I mean, like because you're like sharp and oh, on point you. and smart, like. Uh, really, I, you're going to have like a big future, my dear. Well, that's what my husband says. I'm so like, we'll see. I'm with There's your no husband. There's no guarantee in life and that's okay because I'm honestly grateful for everything I have right now. No, I'm swear. Chris, I'm with you. Wherever you are. I think <laughs> you are like, I, I, I'm not even worried about now that I've actually met you and spoke to you and like, <laughs> Oh, you were worried you? about me before. <laughs> well, no, cause I don't even, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, yeah, right. Fair. And like, you know, you always came across me like very like smart and like wise and, and, um, intelligent. But when you meet you, you, you can see that you're like, a kind person and you're a oh, good person. Well, and next I, time let's hit that treadmill together. A hundred percent. Oh my God. I had no idea. I made her sit at the, at the table with me. Who would have thought that you would want to do the treadmill after giving Love birth? It. Love it. I'm gosh. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. 
Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.